traditions are an interesting thing. I'm reminded of tradition every time a holiday comes around. Easter may be a holiday that's less prone to traditions, but I'd imagine if we surveyed the room, there would still be lots of Easter traditions. But whether it's Easter traditions or Christmas traditions or Friday nights or Saturday mornings, we love traditions. We gravitate towards them. Whatever it is, whether it's a cheesy photo op, whether it's uh, repeated meals, whether it's searching for uh, presents or Easter eggs. But maybe you're sitting here thinking, I don't, I don't do traditions. Well, you do. Your tradition is just being grumpy about happy things. We are all naturally inclined to traditions. It's a safe space for us. Maybe even you being here today is a tradition. Maybe you go to church or you know people who go to church a couple times a year or maybe once a year on big, uh, once or twice a year on big Christian holidays. Well, why? Well, I think for a lot of people the answer is tradition. It's tradition. Even if you come here every week, maybe you even worship with a church more than once in a week, it's very possible that you have the same answer. Why do you do what you do? Tradition. Religious forms often boil down to tradition. Now, when I say the word tradition, maybe every time, I probably said it already 20 times, maybe you're like, ah, cringing. Maybe you hate the word tradition. Maybe others of you love tradition. And when I'm saying tradition, it just warms your heart. Maybe others of you haven't been able to hear a word I've said because from the first word of the sermon where I said tradition, all you're thinking of is fiddler on the roof, right? Tradition, tradition. If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, go track down Fiddler on the Roof. It's a good musical. But maybe that's all you're thinking of because that's just such a prominent punch in that movie, that play, that musical tradition. And so let me read some familiar words from Fiddler on the Roof. Because of our traditions, we've kept our balance for many, many years. Here in Anatevka, we have traditions for everything. How to eat, how to sleep, even how to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition start? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. Because of our traditions, everyone knows who he is and what God expects him to do. We gravitate towards traditions. It's a safe space for us. But what I want you to hear is tradition is not the enemy. You're not going to hear that. If, if that's what you come away hearing today, you've misheard me or I've misspoke. Our passage does not teach that traditions are the enemy. But when tradition becomes ultimate, then that's where we get into trouble. We enter into the danger zone if Anything gets elevated above Jesus. And so the big idea from Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, where we'll be this morning, is simple. Jesus trumps tradition. 
This isn't an American political statement sneaking Trump in the middle. This is Jesus trumps, Jesus beats, Jesus triumphs over tradition. Jesus trumps tradition. I hope you see this morning that Jesus is not opposed to tradition, but he's also not afraid to stand opposed to tradition done wrongly. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning and you would like to have a Bible with you, I think it'll help you to have it in front of you. We have some Bibles on the table over there. If you forgot yours or you don't have one, feel free to go grab one at any time. Uh, if you don't own a Bible or you don't know where your Bible ended up or it's, you have a Bible that you just can't read the words, you don't understand it, uh, you can take one of those Bibles, even if you don't grab one right now on your way out, uh, as our gift to you. But would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, if you need help finding uh, Mark, it is in the New Testament, so it's going to be closer to the back cover. Uh, and the Mark, it's a nice big book. You should be able to track it down. Most of your Bibles will have a table of contents, which should help you. Uh, you can also elbow the person next to you and ask them to help you. They would uh, be glad, I'm sure, to get you where we need to be. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2. So that's the big numbers in our Bibles, our chapters. So chapter 2, verses 18, these are the small numbers, through 22. If you believe that this is God's holy and true word, when I'm done reading, I'm going to say this is God's word. And if you believe that, I would encourage you to say out loud, thanks be to God. So let's stand for the reading of God's word from Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine will be destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. As we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark so far, there's been a bit of a collision that's begun, and it's going to continue uh, between Jesus and some of the religious leaders. Uh, Jesus and the way things have always been done. We get this picture of this collision over and over, because as Jesus comes in and as he speaks and as he acts, as he does his thing, uh, things are being disrupted. Traditions, the way things used to be the way things have always been done. And this is what Jesus came to do. Not to be a troublemaker for troublemaking's sake, but to change everything for the better. And as I've said, as we think about tradition, I want us to hold that intention, this whole idea of tradition being a good thing, but where it can go wrong. And so I'm going to differentiate it by using different words for us so we don't just have to live in that ambiguity. Uh, we need to think about tradition and traditionalism, okay? 
two words, kind of similar, tradition, traditionalism. One scholar summarizes it like this. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Now, Jesus came not to undo all of God's work in the past. He came to make things new. And along the way, he boldly confronts this dead faith, this empty religiosity, traditionalism. Now, traditionalism isn't a word we use a lot, but there is another word, which is, again, not common to our normal language, but it's a little bit more common, at least in the church, and so I'm going to use it a little bit more often than traditionalism, and that word is legalism. Legalism. We're going to get into it a little bit later, but that's what we're going to be thinking about. And so I want to consider just very simply two points this morning, that Jesus was not afraid of tradition, but he was also not afraid to confront legalism. So first, Jesus was not afraid of tradition. What is tradition? We've considered it already a little bit in our own traditions. We've considered it a little bit already as we've looked at the text. But tradition is a handing down. It's a, it's a passing of the baton. And in that sense, we can think of tradition and not cringe. We can think of tradition as a truly good thing. Do you have a simple way of understanding what tradition is? If not, you can take this or leave this. But I heard one person describe tradition as finding out which mushrooms are poisonous without having to find out the hard way. That's tradition, right? It's someone saying, don't eat that. So it's you, you're walking in the woods with your dad, and your dad says, don't eat that mushroom, right? Ignoring tradition would be saying, okay, boomer, and taking it and eating it anyway. And it just makes for an awkward drive to the emergency room when that same boomer is driving you there. That's how we can think about tradition, Right? It's, a, it's a handing down. It's a right passing of the baton. Now, Jesus was not afraid of tradition. Sometimes I think we overcorrect when we read passages like this, and we, we just think that Jesus is some anti-religious anarchist. Well, already in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen multiple examples where Jesus demonstrates that he's not afraid of tradition. When he heals the leper, Jesus tells him to go and show himself to the priest and to make an offering as Moses commanded, as the law demands. If Jesus was anti-tradition, he wouldn't say something like this. Earlier, we saw Jesus teaching in the synagogue. He hasn't abandoned the religious practices of his people. And we see over and over that Jesus, he's not only only anti-tradition, anti-religion, he's not even anti-institution. Later in Mark, when he's asked about paying taxes, Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And so here in our passage, when we look specifically at the example in front of us of fasting, Jesus is not anti-fasting. He's not afraid of tradition. Now, this passage doesn't give us uh, a full theology of fasting, but it does help us to think about what is fasting and how is fasting practiced. Well, generally, fasting in the Bible is uh, going without food or drink for a period of time. Uh, There was one fast that was commanded for the Jewish people, and that was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And that's where they would fast, and it was tied to repentance. It was tied to a solemn remembrance of sin and atonement. Other fasts were added in for the Jewish people throughout history, particularly during uh, the exile and the return from exile. And often fasting was 
uh, tied to securing uh, guidance and help from God. Fasting was and is an act of devotion. And so the Pharisees, we see the Pharisees referenced here, religious leaders, a religious sect, they frequently fasted. Uh, we find out other places in the Gospels that they generally practiced uh, fasting twice a week on Mondays and on Thursdays. Uh, and as with the rest of their lives, they probably viewed this fasting as an act that would demonstrate their devotion to God. It was a, a visible, even public act of their own piety. We also get John the Baptist, uh, his disciples, referenced here as fasting. And John has already proven himself to be incredibly devoted to being uh, this forerunner for Jesus. And so it's not surprising that those who were following him, those who were with him, would be fasting uh, in this awaiting uh, the Savior who is coming. But it's worth noting, as we look through even this passage, Jesus does not forbid or condemn fasting. Jesus fasted himself on at least one occasion when he went into the wilderness to begin his earthly ministry. Elsewhere, we see that Jesus assumes that his followers will fast. Right In Matthew 6, he says, and when you fast. Not if you fast, but when you fast. So he assumes that this will be a discipline for us. And we see this play out on multiple occasions. Particularly in the book of Acts, we see fasting regularly done by God's people as they're seeking guidance from God. And right here in the text, it says in verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. But what's being asked of Jesus in this passage? What's being asked of Jesus here? Well, it's as if these people, whoever these people are, are coming around and they're asking Jesus, comparing Jesus and his followers to, these, to John the Baptist and the Pharisees and their disciples and their followers. It's as if they're saying, if you guys are so spiritual, why don't you fast like those other guys? And what Jesus says here tells us a lot more about who he is than even what about, uh, about what fasting is. Look what he says in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, weddings, this is, we're talking about a wedding here. It's the wedding guests, this bridegroom language. Weddings are celebrations. Even more so for first century Jews than for us today. A wedding could last a week or more. It was a serious party. And in an age when there was not the kind of multiple weeks of vacation time and early retirements that we might be familiar with, this could very well be the best week of the bride and groom's life. And so they partied. There's a time for mourning, and there's a time for dancing, and a wedding is for the latter. Now, Jesus is saying that he is here with his friends like a groom is with his groomsmen. This isn't a time for mourning. It's a time for joy. Jesus wasn't afraid of tradition, but he wasn't about to let tradition get in the way of this new reality. He's here. Could imagine your dream concert. Imagine the one show you would love to see. 
You could even, if you, for your own little mental fantasy here, you could imagine it's a band that doesn't exist anymore. Your dream concert, the one thing you wish you could ever see. And you're excited, you're waiting out in a big line in the parking lot to get into the venue. And then all of a sudden, the doors open, everyone's let in. The concert begins, and you just stay sitting in the parking lot. It'd be absurd, right? Why would you ever do that? It's a ridiculous illustration because it makes no sense. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying. This is his point. John's disciples were likely fasting in anticipation for Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, the chosen one. And Jesus says, why would my disciples fast? I'm here. The concert has begun. And an even greater weightiness comes when we think about how through the Old Testament, God's people were often referred to as his bride. This seems to be another suggestion here of Jesus' divinity being unveiled. He is the groom. He is here for his people, his bride. And so if Jesus truly is God, as we've already seen repeatedly affirmed throughout Mark's gospel so far, Jesus is saying, why would anyone need to fast to be closer to me? I'm here. This is a time for joy. This is the joy of knowing Christ. A relationship with Jesus is not a solemn, boring thing, at least not according to the Bible. The Pharisees thought that being spiritual makes you do things that you don't want to do, and it keeps you from doing the things that you want to do. Is that how you view religion today? This is not the way Jesus views following him. It's a joy-filled reality. There's a sense in which a joyless Christian should be a contradiction of terms. We shouldn't be able to sing the songs that we just sang without joy in our hearts and on our faces. We can look at the examples of what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark already. We see this demon-possessed man who's freed. We see this leper who's cleansed. We see this paralytic who gets up and walks. This kind of physical joy is a picture of the spiritual joy that Christians know deeply. Now, joy is not some happy, clappy, uh, bouncy castles and rainbows. It's not the absence of suffering. But what joy is, deep, true, real joy, is peace with God. It's peace. It's knowing the biggest problem in the world that we all face, our own sin, has been paid for in full. What could be more joyful and joy-inducing than that? And even the joy we know now is only a foretaste of eternal joy. What did we just sing? Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed, and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. This is the prescription for the Christian. This is the joy of knowing Christ. There is a time for fasting, but when Jesus is with his people in perfect fellowship, that's not it. But then we get this jarring shift in verse 20. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. This taken away language is 
not just he, you know, wandered off. This is forcible removal. And again, this is an obscure thought. Why would a groom be forcibly removed from his own wedding? And what we have in our passage here is really the first veiled picture of what we just remembered on Friday. When Jesus would be forcibly taken away and killed. In that day, they will fast. It reminds us, too, that there is a time to mourn over our sin. When we think about how much our sins cost, it should grieve us. When we think about the fact that Jesus came to lay down his life for his people, for his bride, that should be a heavy weight that we think about. There are appropriate times to fast and to mourn. And one of those is when we consider the infinite price that Jesus paid for our sin. We should be grieved by our sin, but we should not be overcome by it. We can and should pray prayers of confession, but always in light of our assurance of forgiveness. Our sin should sicken us, but being saved by Jesus should give us a joy beyond comprehension. Jesus took sin seriously, and that's why he wasn't afraid to fly in the face of legalism. Jesus wasn't afraid of tradition, but he's also not afraid to fly in the face of legalism. Remember, if tradition is a good handing down, a good passing of the baton, remember, finding out which mushrooms are poisonous without having to find out the hard way, traditionalism or legalism would be, to bridge this illustration to places it probably doesn't need to go, it would be saying, the only mushrooms to eat are portabellas. It's the way we've always done it, and your salvation depends on it. That's legalism. It's a ridiculous illustration, but I hope it makes it clear. The distinction between tradition and traditionalism, between tradition and legalism. Legalism is saying that by doing something, by following a certain set of rules, God will accept us. Legalism is incredibly important to be aware of. But I wish it wasn't something we just threw around so flippantly. I hear Christians talk a lot about legalism, but I think often we don't know what we're saying. I think we don't understand the weightiness of what legalism is. Just because a church does something that you don't like or emphasizes certain things doesn't mean that we should accuse them of legalism, unless they're saying that by following these rules, that's the way that you can earn true, genuine salvation. Some of Jesus' harshest words in all of Scripture are against legalism. And so we need to have an equal disdain for legalism, but we need to be careful not to misdiagnose this. We don't want to call preferential differences or traditions legalism if they're not. Jesus didn't have a problem with tradition, but if that tradition becomes the means by which we think that God will accept us, we are in a world of trouble. A world of trouble. Jesus didn't come to be something that gets tacked onto tradition or poured into our religious molds. Jesus came to make things new. Jesus trumps tradition. And he illustrates this with two quick parables in verses 21 and 22. He says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. 
and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, we don't need to be tailors or seamstresses or winemakers to understand what these illustrations mean. Sewing a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment will actually make a worse tear. That's what Jesus says, when it eventually shrinks and pulls away from the old garment. Pouring new wine that would continue to ferment and expand would burst old, dried-out wineskins. New wine needed new wineskins that could stretch and securely contain the new wine. And so what Jesus is saying in this passage, this is the point, is that something new is happening. Something new is happening. He isn't just a new development, a new software update on old traditions, right? Let alone these old legalistic, conscience-binding, man-generated traditions. He isn't something to be stitched onto an old, worn-out garment. He didn't fit the religious mold of what people were expecting of him. And so they foolishly and tragically rejected him. Jesus makes it clear he's not an accessory. He's not a veneer that gets stretched over something dead and rotten to create this illusion of goodness. The good news of Jesus is that he's not a self-help strategy. He didn't just give up his life for the sins of the world so that we could have a marginally improved quality of life. That we could somehow think that by weaving him into the old tired fibers of our lives that we would just be a little bit better. Jesus came and did what he did to make us new. He came to give us spiritual life where we were dead. And this is exactly what was accomplished in what we remember this very weekend. Jesus came to earth to restore humanity to God. This couldn't be accomplished by rule following or imperfect sacrifices or anything else that we could bring to the table. What Jesus did to make all things new was to live a sinless life and to die the death that we deserve, to die as a substitute for sinners. Jesus traded places with sinners like you and me. And this is entirely new, right? This is not just a surface remedy. Imagine how pathetic you know, putting aloe vera on a third-degree burn is or a Band-Aid on a gaping wound or giving a Flintstone vitamin for a deadly disease. This is not the kind of remedy we find in Jesus. This is invasive surgery, spiritual surgery that was necessary for our restoration, that Jesus, God in the flesh, would come to redeem humanity, and that he would do that by dying for the sins of the world. This was costly. In his death and in his resurrection, he inaugurated this new covenant, a new promise. This is something new. Not like the old covenant, as merciful and unmerited as it even was. The new covenant is completely new. And when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, he meant it. There's no greater sacrifice. There's nothing else that was needed. Jesus died so that if you would turn from your sin today and trust in him alone for salvation, not trusting in your actions, not in your money, not in your popularity, not even in your religion, but trust in him alone, you would be saved. You could be made new. Don't delay. Today could be that day for you.
Now let's be reminded too that to Jesus, this traditionalism or this legalism is not the same as religion. Religion is another word that kind of makes us jolt at times. Religion is not a bad word. Religious forms are not inherently bad. God has given us various means of grace, gifts to us, for us to grow together and be built up together, to be strengthened. The Pharisees' problem is they reject Jesus. For them, tradition trumps Jesus. They see exactly who he is, and that's the problem. Right? They see, they hear the claims that he's making, but their chief end is religion. And so they hate him for it. It's not what religion or religious forms is ever meant to do. Fasting is good. You could even fast two or three times a week. And that could be a really good thing. But where legalism creeps in is in saying things that the Bible never says. That somehow to be a real Christian you have to fast multiple times a week or something like that. But maybe it's not fasting that we have to think about here this morning. Maybe... It's even our gathering. Is a Sunday service the beginning and end of your religion? I hope not. Because you could go to church every Sunday, every week of your life, and never be a Christian. We gather to do very important things, to praise God, to encourage one another, to pray, to listen to God's word. God has made us to grow and thrive in these assemblies. But religious form, unhitched from following Jesus, is religious form. It's dead. There's no life there. And all throughout Scripture, we see how God hates the fasting and the rituals and the sacrifices of those who do all these religious forms, what looks like in the right way, but their hearts are rotten inside. All those acts, as good as they look on the outside, are detestable to God. And I heard one pastor compare a church to a professional sports team. Imagine a team that has just the best locker room. Just the best locker room. The comfiest seats, the best vibe, the best music, a really good culture. But if they never go out and play, if they never actually compete, what good is their locker room? Friends, our gatherings and our practices are like locker rooms for us critical to what we do, but it's useless if we unhitch it from really following Jesus, from 11.30 on Sunday afternoon to 9.30 next Sunday morning. If we rely on religious forms and not genuine heart change, we foolishly attempt to pour the new wine of Jesus into our old dead wineskins. We end up doing ourselves no good, and we actually live out a life that distorts who Jesus really is to those around us. Forms matter, but they're not the main point. Jesus is the main point. This is illustrated, too, when we look for a church. Finding a church to commit to, to call home, to covenant with, is a big and important decision. You're not going to hear many people that, you know, cheer on joining a church more than me. If we want to follow God's word, we will join ourselves to a group of Christians in a local church. We have to throw out a lot of the New Testament if we think that Christianity is a solo hike. But in our effort to do that, we need to spend less time looking at how the locker room is decorated. right? Or what programs are offered. And we need to find a church that plays the game. 
It's not about what music they play, what programs are offered. Do they believe the Bible? Do they live it out beyond the corporate gatherings? Then join that church. Doesn't need to be this church. I'd be glad to point you to others around us that do the same. But if we have religious forms without regenerated hearts and changed lives because of Jesus, we're no different than a social club. We're no better than a dead religious institution. And this isn't only a corporate application. What about our own individual hearts? Listen to how one pastor describes how we can get this wrong. He writes, How is it with many professing Christians in the present day? We have only to look around us and see there are thousands who are trying to reconcile the service of Christ and the service of the world. To have the name of Christian and yet live the life of the ungodly. To keep in with the servants of pleasure and sin and yet be the followers of the crucified Jesus at the same time. In a word, they are trying to enjoy the new wine and yet cling to the old bottle. They will find one day that they have attempted that which cannot be done. That's a pretty apt assessment, I think, of what we see all around us. Except that this was written by a pastor named J.C. Ryle 165 years ago. But this is not new. This is far older than J.C. Ryle. Jesus confronted this in his day. In every age, we've been guilty of trying to squeeze Jesus into a mold that we create, rather than trying to figure out how we need to conform our lives to fit him. We want to enjoy what it means to know Jesus, yet we uh, pathetically try to stitch him on to the old, tired garments of our lives. This call to follow Jesus is entirely new. It's to receive new life in such a way that the expanding good news of Jesus takes over. Do you see the difference? Don't miss Jesus this Easter. He came. He died. He rose from the dead so that you could be made new. He changes everything. And there's so much joy in this. Yet you may be here and you may blatantly or blindly reject him. Maybe you go on today and you do your Easter egg hunt, you eat too much chocolate, you reject everything you've heard today. Or maybe you go blindly and you continue to live a seemingly religious life and you try to pour just enough of Jesus in so that your old dead wineskin won't burst. Friends, I want to tell you there's a better way. The bridegroom has come and died and rose to set you free, to set you free from your sin. He died and rose to, so that you could know this true joy, that you could receive a new heart. And so I ask you a question that I really want you to listen to this morning. Do you know the joy of Jesus? Do you know the joy of what it means to follow him? Do you know the freedom and hope that comes with knowing Christ? Take a few moments of quiet reflection and for prayer right now to think about those things, to think about what you've heard today. If you have questions, talk to the person who invited you. Come talk to me after the service. But think about these things. Don't just let this roll over you. Whether it's the first time you've heard this or you've heard it all your life, consider now whether or not Jesus who changes everything, 
needs to change something in you today. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, we come to you humbled, knowing that we, we can't do enough. We can't earn our salvation. We could follow all the rules that we think we're, we're following, whether man-made or things you've commanded us to do. God, we will always fall short. We all fall short of your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that we would know that deeply today, but that that wouldn't crush us, that we would know that there is hope, that Jesus came to die and rise from the dead to set us free from that burden, that we could be counted as righteous because of Jesus' perfection, because our sinless Savior died, our sinful souls could be counted free, that you could look at him and pardon us, what a glorious truth that is. God, help us to know that joy deeply today. Help us not to fear tradition. Help us not to fear the things that you've made so clear in your word that we are to do. But Lord, help us not to put our trust and our faith in anything but Christ alone. Oh God, we thank you that it is in Christ alone that our hope is found each and every day. Help us to know that and remember that as we sing out these truths together with one voice praising you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.